HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by New York Wines, reminding you to eat and drink local this Thanksgiving. For more information, visit newyorkwines.org. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest today is David White, creator of the award-winning wine blog, The Tawarist, and author of the new book, But First, Champagne, A Modern Guide to the World's Favorite Wine. We'll talk blogs and bubbles with David and taste the Jimenez Champagne for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. David White is one of the world's leading wine writers. He's founder and editor of Terrorist.com, an award-winning daily blog. David has also contributed to Grape Collective. His writings have appeared in dozens of other prominent publications. He holds an advanced certificate from the WSET and he just published But First Champagne, A Modern Guide to the World's Favorite Wine. So we're going to get into all that. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me, Sam. You know, I was going to say he just published his first book, but you've, you've published something else before, right? You know, I edited a book uh, about two years ago, uh, kind of like a... An idiot's guide to wine, it might be. A guide to all things wine questions. But it was just, I revised and updated it. It's right. called the Everything Wine Book. Okay. Uh, still was, out there? It's still out there. It's easy to find. Okay. But this is my first book where I actually uh, wrote it as opposed to just updating it and making sure nothing had changed. All right. So for all intents and purposes, let's forget that. And yes. And concentrate on but first. All right. So I want to talk to you about the blog. I want to talk to you about the new book. Um, and I'm going to ask you to tell me how you got to this point. Of course. But I'm just interested in one thing, and don't spend a ton of time on it. And it may be part of your dialogue on how you got here. But you just finished writing a new book. You manage a daily blog, which we'll talk about, which is a daily blog. And there's not a lot of daily blogs. You contribute to another daily blog. And for most people, that would be a full day's work. But you have a full-time job. I do. And I do. with a, a C-suite title. <laughs> so just tell me about that quickly. Sure. So I'll tell you how I ended up here, and I'll also tell you how I find the time for it. How I find the time for it is pretty easy. At this point in my life, I don't have children yet. I don't watch TV. There's a lot of hours in the day, and I've always been one of those people who 
is sort of happier when I'm really busy and working than when I'm not, uh, which has its downsides. But even in college, I was on the varsity crew team. I had, you know, I had to pay my bills, so I delivered newspapers every morning. I also ran the political magazine, also attended classes. So I've always been someone who... And not at, like, Montclair State. Yeah, it was I, at Yale. I went to Yale. Okay. Um, so I've always been one of these people who uh, just kind of thrives on keeping myself a little too busy for comfort. Uh, and the wine writing has been a part of that. Backstory of how I ended up launching Terroirist is, um, you know, I've been writing professionally since I graduated from college. But what... Writing professionally in general, in not general. just wine? In general. Okay, so, so your writing skills were developed and getting better. Correct. I majored in political science, uh, used to like politics, moved to Washington, D.C. in 2004 thinking I liked politics to be a speechwriter. I, uh, I, I was a speechwriter at the Department of Housing. And by the time H-U-D? I left, HUD, HUD. And when I left a year and a half later, I'd actually risen to chief speechwriter. It was a pretty simple story. I was in the right place at the right time and didn't screw anything up. Uh, deputy speechwriter got a different what job. What administration was that? That was the Bush, Bush administration. administration? Okay. Back when it wasn't as embarrassing to say you were a Republican. Okay. How, how things have changed. All right. So we know, the, <laughs> we know the answer to that question. Go ahead. How things have changed. So fast forward a couple of years. Uh, when you're writing about housing all day, every day, it gets boring very quickly. So I left to start freelance writing, linked up with a guy who's now one of my closest friends and business partners who had been an editorial writer at the Wall Street Journal Europe. He had started a one-man ghostwriting company. We joined forces uh, as his company became too big for just himself, and we went into business together. Uh, first, it was speeches, letters, opinion columns, what byline was the articles. Corporate types. Okay. You know, uh, it's, it's, when you talk about ghostwriting people, at first they're shocked, and then they think, well, wait a second, the president doesn't write his own stuff, senators don't write their own stuff, CEOs at top companies don't write their own stuff. And from there, we accidentally became a full-service PR firm. So now we book people on radio and TV. We do traditional PR. We uh, build websites. We design infographics. We've got about 21 employees now. Wow. In 2007, I went to Napa Valley on a trip with some very close friends. It was Halloween weekend, and I would have been uh, 25 or 26 at the time. I think we were the only group of 25-year-old men that decided to miss Halloween and instead go on a wine country getaway together. I think Halloween, it would have been probably a lot more fun than that, but I came back completely infatuated with wine. So up until that point, wine was just... Like foreign to me. Else. Foreign you to me. Go out to dinner, maybe have a glass, go to somebody. At best, but no you know, real no- wine knowledge. Correct. Or Grew interest. up without wine ever on the table. Uh, went to college like most college kids, drank a lot of beer. No wine. By the time I was 24, 25, I had just enough disposable income to realize that when you have disposable income, you start caring about food and cocktails and better beer and better wine. And that's what I chose to spend my money on. and just fell head over heels for it. So back up. So you're in Napa 07, you said? 07, October of 07. with three, four other guys? With three other guys. And are you determined to explore and taste or just tool around or a little We were determined. Very, fortunately, one of my good friends, a guy named Andrew, some of his friends were really into wine. So they set up. They told us where to go, where to eat. And we went to some places that even today I love. Uh, And the one that really stood out to me then and stands out to me now is Fela, a winery based in Napa, but most of their fruits from Sonoma, and not just Sonoma, but the Sonoma Coast. Right. And I remember having uh, their estate Syrah, and my mind was just blown. Lights out, you know, leg shaking, heart beating. How does a wine smell like this? How does it taste like this? I need to understand everything about so this that, as that quickly as moment. possible. That was the moment, you the know. The moment first for interest in wine and a life. Correct, to it. correct. So then things. So, snowball. of course, you know, Fela Syrah took me to the extreme Sonoma Coast producers like Hirsch and Pei and Litteri, which are still some of my favorite. Once you realize you love the extreme Sonoma Coast wines, you realize. You should probably start looking at Europe. And that's why, you know, today most of my palate is that narrow corridor in France from northern Rhone up to Champagne. But uh, All great stuff. All great stuff. So from 2007 to 2010, I did what anybody who's obsessed with something does. I learned as much as I could. I'm an obsessive type. I've seen Bruce Springsteen in concert 27 times. Okay. When I really like something, I really like something. So I started taking classes, WSET classes. I started buying books. I started collecting wine. 
from Safeway because that's all I could afford. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, but you would go into Safeway and uh, find that one yes. gym, right? I would go into Safeway and say, I should really taste this producer. Um, I'm probably embarrassed about some of those producers, but that's beside the point. By the time 2010 came along, I was spending all of my free time reading about wine. And I knew how to write because of my career as a writer. I knew how to place media content because of... And the business is in place now with your partner yeah, and all the that. the business yeah. is in place. We're starting to so grow. this is more of a... You're working nine to five or whatever. Exactly. You're doing this exactly. as your passion and free interest time, all that. Correct. Someone told me I don't have to apologize for the fact that uh, by 2010, I was able to get my job done in eight hours a day. <laughs> so I thought I had four hours more to work on other right. stuff. Uh, I think most people would choose that time to, right. to probably watch Law & Order reruns or something. But remember, you said you don't have kids. Yes. <laughs> if and when that changes, that changes. I think that so. will change quite a bit. All right. So 2010. 2010, I was spending all my time reading about wine and uh, collecting wine, tasting, going to tastings, meeting people to taste with. And I was very frustrated that there wasn't a wine blog that delivered what I wanted. What I wanted was one site that had a human news aggregator because every morning I was checking 35 websites. Sure, I subscribed to the RSS feeds, but I was just the, my thirst for knowledge was insatiable. I also loved learning about winemakers, and it boggled my mind that the best winemaker profiles I could find were on wineterroirs.com. I still think that's the case. And I thought to myself, you know, it's very easy to interview someone and either do it over email or transcribe it. I don't need to be a part of that story. I don't need to write that narrative. I just want to learn about them from them. Why isn't there a site that regularly interviews winemakers? And really, you scoured, and there was nothing. There was nothing even doing what close? I was correct. Was and there I, anything separate of that desire that was good? I mean, if you sure. Look back I mean, what what were the better? You blogs? look back at 2010, and Alderiaro Venography was right. uh, was on every. I visited every day, and that's another guy with a full time job who right. found the time to write extraordinary posts uh, all the time. Tom Wark, Fermentation, was around then, obviously. He'd started the Wine Blog Awards. Joe Roberts, One Wine Dude, Dr. Vino, Tyler Coleman. Right, those guys were around. Yeah, they were around, and I loved their sites, and I just thought, you know... There, the world has 350 or 3,500 other wine blogs, but these blogs are updated maybe once a month, maybe every six months. Is it really a blog if you're updating it once a month, or is it more of a drinking diary? The frequency was really that... Yeah, there was long. Wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even weekly. You would check back, and yeah, and stuff would just sit correct, there for weeks. Correct, and you'd be, you know, it drives and, you crazy, right? And a lot of people started wine blogs because they were getting into wine, like I was three years earlier, and I was just shocked by the lack of knowledge out there. There wasn't enough serious blogs that were approaching it from a generalist perspective. So I decided, you know what? If the blog I want doesn't doesn't exist, I should write it myself. At that time, fortunately, I'd also just put the finishing touches on a 3,500-word magazine essay on the uh, interstate shipping laws and wine. I thought, there's, <laughs> I thought there was only one real place that might be interested in this, the world of fine wine. So I pitched it there, and fortunately, they accepted it. So I kind of started with a bang. The blog launched in November of 2010. About a few couple weeks prior, the World of Fine Wine published my first ever piece of writing, which was about interstate shipping laws. And from there, my wine writing in the early days was policy-focused, so I pitched wine focused op-eds to the New York Times was published there, LA Times was published there, Washington Post was published there. So fortunately, again, and I had my PR hat on, said, you know, if I'm going to start a wine writing career and no one's ever heard of me, I'm going to start with a bang. So that's what I did in the you know first few months of 2011 and final few months of 2010. So it evolved and morphed into something more. I mean, you advocated then. Correct. You, know, you, you took up issues. So... Fast forward a few more months, uh, I went to the Wine Writer Symposium in Napa Valley, and I returned thinking, you know what, I'm actually more interested in writing about wine more broadly than simply writing about wine policy. And from there, I started writing just more about wine in general, writing columns, commentary on my website and the like. Obviously, at this time, I was publishing the Daily News Aggregator every day of the week myself. Every Saturday, I was publishing wine reviews. Tasting wine and writing tasting notes is, uh, I hate it. I don't do tasting notes. I don't like tasting notes. I don't like scoring wines. I don't like wine scores. But at the time, I like I, what you like. <laughs> I like what I like. And I do think that provides an important, val uh, you know, that's a, it's, a lot of people value that for a lot of good reasons. And it was just too time consuming for me. And I realized probably not until 2013 or 2014, you know, hey, I'm spending every night or every morning with at least an hour 
to write this daily news post. I'm writing reviews. You know, if even if you power taste wines, if you're reviewing 15 wines at a pop, it's probably three, four hours out of your day. Sure. And that all cut into the time I could have to write longer form pieces. So the blog started to change for me when I realized the, the beauty of delegation and hiring people. Fortunately, we had some ad revenue. And because I was writing about wine, and I'm very fortunate in that wine writing can be revenue neutral for me, you know, my goal was, hey, if I'm not losing money doing what I love, I can kind of turn this into a, into a nonprofit business of sorts. So I was able to uh, bring on a wonderful person named Shelby to handle the daily wine news. She started doing that about two years ago. About three years ago, a good friend of mine in D.C. who likes tasting wine uh, as voraciously as I like reading about wine, he took over the wine reviews. And then I had a lot more time to just focus on a twice-monthly column that was housed at Grape Collective for a long time. And I retired that column to get started on my first book. Right. So I guess there's two, three things on the site. There's an aggregation of mm-hmm. all the wine news. And who... Who curates and aggregates that? So right now it's entirely Shelby Vitek. So um, she'll look at what's going on through a multitude of publications. Exactly. And then there's an art to figuring out a balance. What's valuable? What's, int- what's right. important? People email us. Obviously, we all know what the big news is. Um, but sometimes there, there are bloggers that deserve a larger audience than they otherwise would naturally have. And I think that's one of the most rewarding things about Terroirist. There's a yeah, you forget that point. Yeah, there's Give a, another blogger an opportunity. Exactly, to an it's really cool to see how grateful people are when they get linked to on us because maybe they only get 18 visitors a day. Maybe it's you know their mom and their yeah, and their and cousin. They have a great voice. And then if they write a great piece and either we find out about it or someone sends it our way. They are extraordinarily grateful for it. It's like, well, you wrote a fantastic 800-word piece of commentary. My favorite example of that is there's a guy in D.C. named Tom Natan who has a company called First Vine Wine Imports and Sales. He's a one-man importer and online retailer based in D.C., and he writes a blog post probably twice a month, and almost every post he writes is worth reading. Uh, and I don't know if people would know about Tom's site. I don't want to take the credit because like, Tom is an extraordinary writer. And it's so great that we've been able to drive people there because our site has become such an important place for people in the industry to visit every That's day. Great. So you have, you have that opportunity to expose people. You aggregate the news. And then you said you do a column a couple yeah. times a month. So um, – more broadly than just policy. <laughs> so yeah. back in 2012, I decided, you know what? I, I, love, I like being busy. I like a schedule. Rather than pre-pitching pieces to magazines or you know writing a piece and then pitching it and trying to find a home for it, I'm just going to write a piece every other Tuesday. I'm going to find a website that will take what I send them every other week. And because, again, I know how to pitch in place, I'm going to syndicate this myself to hundreds of papers across the country. So from 2012 to 2000, the end of 2015, I was writing this column twice a month. It uh, first ran in Wine.com, then Palette Press, and eventually Grape Collective. And by the time uh, December of 2015 came along, every other week without fail, this was running about 65, 70 small newspapers around the country. Wow. So that was a lot of fun. And that was a, it was a, it, like all my writing is written for the aspiring wine enthusiasts, uh, including, including this book. And it's how do we bring anaphilia down to a level that people aren't scared by it. Because I remember what it was like in 2007 when I returned from Napa, infatuated with wine, wanting to learn everything by it, and just being terrified by it. Because, you know, I read the tasting note on this wine I fell in love with, and I think the tasting note said it smelled like a warm chestnut leaf. (laughs) I don't know what a warm chestnut leaf looks like, let alone smells like. And I think if you're an aspiring wine enthusiast, you you must think to yourself, well, I guess I'm not going to ever learn much about wine if I don't know what a warm chestnut leaf smells like. So I've always tried to write in a way that even if I'm writing about Anselm Solos or Pierre Jiménez or these, you know, these these folks in Champagne. I try to write about everything in a way that someone off the street who doesn't know much about wine, beside the fact that every now and then they subscribe to Wine Spectator and then it lapses, and they go to Total Wine every quarter to buy a few cases to get them through the next three months. You know, that's who I try to write for. That's what this show is about. Yeah, that's that's what I try to write for. You know. We don't want to get too nerdy. We don't want to get too technical. We spell a lot of stuff out because mm-hmm. people hear things. You know, we could say the Loire Valley 50 times, and some people will never know how to even start and to spell that. One reason why people are so comfortable with American wine is right. because 
I know where California is. I know how to say Chardonnay. I know how to say Sonoma. And, and they like it. And yeah. they like it. Yeah. <laughs> and right, you, so let's finish up with the Tawaras. So you do the column. You aggregate the news. In the aggregation of the news, you help people, mm-hmm. you know, smaller writers get exposed. And then you have a staff that contributes to tasting Correct. and other Correct. writing and helping you with all of that. A guy named Eric Anino does a book and movie reviews almost once a week. He's writing a review of either a new wine book or a new wine movie. Okay. So it's it's a good kind of all one-stop shop for everything that's going on in the wine world. And I think as far as wine, you were doing that before the trend because there's a lot of aggregation now sure. of news and art and entertainment. Um, a lot of sites are doing that, but but that was a, a good jump. And that's that. why, I mean, I'm, there's make no mistake, the reason Terroirs became so popular so quickly is because it was a one-stop shop. That every day of the week, if you cared about wine, you could visit at 8 a.m. without fail, never miss a day. It, and it did what you yearned for. It did what and I yearned for. you were a fair model for the consumer because mm-hmm. you weren't underdeveloped or overdeveloped as far as your interest. Correct. So the site is thetawaris.com. It's T-E-R-R-O-I-R-I-S-T.com. Correct. Tawaris. I always have trouble saying Tawaris. Yeah. Tawaris. <laughs> it's Tawaris.com. So that's a passion of David and something he's been doing. But he just wrote a book, and I think the book plays into what we've been discussing. Um, he wrote a book about champagne that I think is for everybody. I hope so. And it's called But First... There's sort of a cadence to this, and I'm, but first, comma, champagne. What are the two little dots? A colon. A colon. <laughs> a modern guide to the world's favorite wine. So, let me give you the setup question. Mm-hmm. Been a lot of books written about champagne. Uh, a lot of people involved in champagne. What was your objective when you wrote this book? I mean, you know, there are champagne books out there. You had to have an idea of. Why this book would make sense? Absolutely, for a lot of I think the story is similar to Terroiris in that I wrote the book that I was very upset didn't exist. Just like I launched Terroiris because I launched the wine blog, I was upset didn't exist. Three summers ago, so about three and a half years ago, I was having lunch in D.C. with a guy named Kevin Sitters. Started a company called VinConnect. Really quick background on VinConnect because it's important to this story. Kevin was a recovering investment banker. A lot of investment bankers fall in love with wine. When they fall in love with wine, they join California mailing lists. Inevitably, their palate takes them somewhere in Europe, either to replace California or in addition to California. And they lose that relationship that they developed with their uh, with the folks they were buying from in California. Whether you're buying from Fela or Pay or you're buying from Harlan or Screaming Eagle, if you're on the mailing list, you feel as if you have a friend in California that you're purchasing from directly. Then you fall in love with uh, Bordeaux and you completely lose that relationship. So Kevin started a company to see if he could kind of create that direct mail model for American consumers who had fallen in love with European wines. The background is important, not because I'm doing PR for Kevin, but because he knew a lot. He knows a lot about wine. And three and a half years ago, we were having lunch, and he was about to go to Champagne for the first time on vacation and also to see if he could convince any producers there to become part of his portfolio. And before leaving, he said, hey, David, we've had a lot of great Champagne together. And it was the summer of 2013. So if you're a wine geek, you'd been drinking Frederick Savart. You'd been drinking Jerome Prevost. You'd been drinking some of these stars of Instagram, as I call them. And Kevin and I had a lot of these wines together. And he said, before I go to the region, what book should I buy to learn its history, get my head around it? answer the questions I should know the answer to, and also learn about the top producers. And there wasn't a firm I couldn't answer. Think, I couldn't think of an answer. And I was shocked by it because my bookshelf at home is packed with wine books. And I immediately thought of Tom Stevenson's Guide to Champagne and Sparkling Wines. I forget if it's Christie's or Sotheby's. It's a great reference book that answers a lot of your questions, but it's, it's not a fun, you're not going to sit no, down and read it on an airplane. Exactly. Tons of information. Then there's the Widow Cucot, which is an awesome, is a beach read if you love history and want to learn the biography of but one important person. not what he person. was looking for. Yeah. He needed and, more of a guide and listings and all. And there's the Finest Wines of Champagne, which is the closest I can think of, but it's, it's a British publication and it's very much 
a just series of producer profiles. And I thought, why isn't there a book that tells Champagne's history, which is fascinating. You know, Western Front was through Champagne. Nazi Germany occupied Champagne. It is, you know, witnessed more bloodshed than any region of the world. And also lubricated more celebrations than any region in the world. It's got all this extraordinary history. history. And how does this book that combines that history with how is Champagne made? How do you buy Champagne? Why do athletes spray each other with Champagne? Why isn't there a one-stop book to answer all these questions. In the summer of 2013, I was very upset this book didn't exist, and I was convinced that I was not the guy so to write this book. So he helped you planted the seed. set the light off planted. Planted the seed. I was not the guy to write this book. I was not then, and I am not now Peter Liam. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on anything. Peter just finished the Champagne du Fate yeah. last week in New York. So, and I, you know, so I thought, well, it's really a hey, shame. Don't undersell yourself. <laughs> it's a real shame that this book doesn't exist. Fast forward a year, and I went to Champagne on vacation with my uh, now fiancé, then girlfriend. Came back even more in love with Champagne and even more frustrated this book didn't exist. Again, didn't quite think I was the guy to write it. Fast forward a few months, I go up to Boston to have dinner with Terry Thies. And for those who don't know who Terry Thies is, he plays a big role in the book because he deserves a lot, if not all of the credit, for introducing America to grower champagne, which are the champagnes made by the people who grow the grapes. So I went up to Boston, had dinner with Terry Thies and a friend of mine from D.C. named John Brooks. And by the time dinner finished with Terry, who has a personality that could probably captivate a room of 500 people or 5,000 people, by the time I finished dinner with Terry and this guy, John, I had endless material for newspaper columns of mine. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm starting to have enough to write a book or proposal book. because this book still doesn't exist. And I'm still upset this book doesn't exist. It's great. So that all came together about in November of 14 is when I decided I'm going to move forward with this book. Great. But you in the book and, and um, qualify this for me. You call wine the the world's favorite wine, champagne, the world's favorite wine. Why is that? Is is that by consumption? Is that by celebration? I mean, you made that statement. I did back make that, that statement. Up. I will back that up. When people hear a cork pop, they smile. That's the, you're that, right about that. It's, it's that simple. You know, if there's, I think all wine should succeed in delivering pleasure. And right. that's I think why it's part of yeah. What people look forward to when they open a bottle of wine. And I love, you know, I'm a, I'm a total geek. I drink mostly natural wine. That said, when a wine demand, when a wine only demands intellectual contemplation and doesn't actually make you smile, I don't think it's succeeding because a wine must deliver pleasure. And when you hear that cork pop on a bottle of champagne, you're going to smile right away because most champagne succeeds in delivering right. pleasure. And, you know, I want to get into it. It's it's sort of been on the shelf as a celebratory wine, mm-hmm. and it's been underrated as a food wine, food pairing. Yeah, the, you know, the industry friendly. did it to itself. And, and, and we'll, they, uh... we'll, we'll talk about that. So you cover the history mm-hmm. in the book, so we don't need to get too much into history. But you brought something up, and I think it's sort of a big part of champagne, grower champagne. Mm-hmm. So do two things. Explain what a grower champagne is. Sure. Is it specific? And I think it's fair to say that grower champagne has sort of changed the market and the model a Completely. little. Completely. How? So, so my audience, what's a grower champagne? So a Tell grower champagne it. is when the person, when the farmer who grows the grapes also makes the wine. That's going to be, well, of course, the farmer who grows the grapes makes the wine. That's what happens in Burgundy. That's what happens in a lot of places in California. Of course, in California, you might have heard of a negotiant, someone who purchases grapes and then makes their own wine. But that's not the norm from the wines that, that we drink. In Champagne, that was the norm for most of history. And the reason for that is really simple. Uh, in 1729, uh, Nicholas Ruinart started what today is the, what was the first champagne house. And at the time, champagne Ruinart was... Ruinart is considered the first champagne correct. house? Correct. Okay. Ruinart is the first champagne house. It's That's the, R-U-I-N-A-R-T. Correct. Ruinart. Uh, fascinating story, but I'll make it very simple. Lots of farmers there growing grapes. Lots of farmers there making wine at the time. Sparkling wine became a thing. In 1728 in France, they were allowed to start bottling the wine. It's in the book. You can learn why bottles were actually illegal in France until 1728. But Ruinart started making a sparkling wine to give away to his consumers. He was a fabric merchant. And he was simply that. He was a production specialist and a marketer. And why do I say production specialist? Because in the early days of Champagne, they still didn't know what, co- they still didn't know what caused fermentation. 
let alone how to launch a secondary fermentation in the bottle, let alone how to capture those bottle those bubbles in the bottle. So in the early days of champagne, it just happened. They didn't just exactly know the process. <laughs> in the early days of wow. champagne, it was extraordinarily difficult. If you put sparkling wine in, in a lot of bottles and you have no way to relegate regulate that pressure, bottles are going to explode. So there were a lot of injuries right. in champagne in the early days. So it developed this <laughs> model. guys. Yeah. So long story very short, these producers like Tattinger, Moet, Paul Roger, Ballinger, all the producers we can probably name if we put our heads together, they became known as production specialists. They were purchasing grapes from across the region because most growers there weren't going to make their own wine. They might lose ah, an eye. They might lose sense. an eye. And as these so folks, it's it split to farming and production. Correct. And as these folks developed international brands through marketing, they needed to uh, have as much supply as they wanted, or as little supply as they wanted as they grew. So it simply made more sense for them to just purchase the grapes from farmers. The farmers didn't have skin in the production game, and the producers didn't have any skin in the farming game. That's crazy. I didn't yeah. realize. So that. that's the history of uh, of the big brands. Now, of course, Champagne is full of farmers, and after a while, after about 150 years, some of them started making their own wines. A producer called Vilmar, V-I-L-M-A-R-T, they started making their own wines in 1890, never sold to a big producer. So by the, by the mid to late 1800s, a lot of folks started making their own Champagne from the grapes they were growing, but very little of that Champagne made it out of France, let alone out of Champagne itself. It was being consumed in the local market. So if you look at all the names that you recognize, has anyone are, – are all grower champagnes smaller? Are there large grower champagnes where the operation is – the farming is large enough and the production? Sure. Or, I mean is there a name that – It depends what you – you know, we look at a producer like Moet or Veuve Clicquot. They're making about uh, – I think probably 40 million bottles a year each. You look at a producer like Jimenez or Pierre Peters, two of the largest growers, they're making 250,000 bottles okay, a year. So uh, but there are also... The only way to do volume is there's no way you could be a grower champagne and be the big volume. Yeah, I mean, I think Pierre Peters is, is pretty huge, and it's 250,000 bottles, because there are some right. growers making 5,000 bottles right. a year, but 250,000... Just like winery in France, yeah. Italy, or Napa, you know, 300 cases, 3,000 cases, 30,000. But obviously, you know, uh, 250,000 bottles compared to 40 million, nothing. A lot of these small growers that we're excited about making 5,000 bottles a year, 6,000 bottles a year. Now, you were in Napa in 07. I went in 99 and sort of had the same feeling. From 99 to 2000 to, to now, the amount of wineries oh, yeah. has you know exponentially grown. Has that happened with grower champagne guys? I mean, are there more now than there were five years ago, 10 years ago? There are a lot more available for sale in the United States. Okay. And there are but a I lot. But I mean the producers first. Did, did more producers? Not as much as you might think. Okay. Um, because, again, because of that history. Right. Champagne region, about 20,000 farmers. Of those 20,000 farmers, only about 2,000 make their own wine. Of the 2,000 that make their own wine, only about 300 get imported to the United States. Got it. Got it. Um, is is champagne different today than? Absolutely. How? So I'll, I'll tell you two quick reasons why champagne has changed so dramatically that have nothing to do with us as U.S. consumers. The first is uh, new. What time span are we talking about? Are we talking the last thirty years, fifty years, hundred years? I Let mean, me tell you about. There's the, a yes, 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 and yes, but twentieth century. The soils in Champagne were totally devastated for two reasons. First, as Champagne grew as an industry, Paris was growing as a city. Paris needed a place to put all of its trash, and Champagne needed a lot of compost to grow grapes. Now think about what trash was like 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Trash was perfect organic compost. Right. It was food scraps, vegetables, right. fruit, meat. It was building materials, stone, wood. It was uh, clothing materials, wool, hemp. There was nothing in someone's trash 120 years ago that would have done anything bad to the soil. So as things got processed, that went in the exactly. trash so the, and that So the petrochemical revolution, which wow. was World War II, resulted in two things. Trash changed a lot, and we also discovered fungicides, herbicides, pesticides. Put yourselves in the shoes of a grower 
in Champagne, your only incentive is to make as many grapes as possible. You're paid by the ton by these large growers. So of course you're decimating your, I shouldn't say decimating your soil. We didn't know any better. It's better wine through chemistry, more grapes through chemistry. So That's true. what they were doing. Of course, also the trash in Paris is starting to change quite a bit. No one yet realizes the impact of just dumping trash bags in vineyards. Right. That wasn't actually banned. It became out of fa- It went very out of fashion very quickly in the 60s and 70s. wasn't actually banned until 1981. If you walk around Champagne today, you'll still see blue specks of plastic in the vineyards. Those are the trash bags from Paris in the so 70s. So in 81, they stopped. The, uh, most stopped before that. It actually became against the law, yeah. But there was that, you know, years and years, it's still in the soil. And even so, the other thing... Were they able to bring it back? Were they able to... Oh, to yeah. bring the soils, Starting to them. come back. So Just if, starting still. If you love wine, <clears throat> of course a winemaker cares about his soils. But again, Champagne is this history of winemaking being different from wine growing. So it really took a lot of these growers to start respecting their soils for the big houses to say, you know what, they're making really good wine and they're embarrassing us because right. their soil is packed with life and worms and looks like dirt. Our soil looks like the, you know, the surface of the moon. We should probably do something about that. So there's a huge, now more than ever, there's a huge natural, organic, biodynamic uh, wine movement. The raw, the raw wine fair was here a week mm-hmm. ago. Are there champagne people that practice organic, biodynamic? Is it a handful of people? Is it a lot? I mean, it's a rapidly growing group of people. Like most producers in France, uh, uh, like most places in France, a lot of producers choose to forego organic certification because then you have to deal with all sorts of government paperwork. And if we don't like going to the DMV in the United States, right. imagine what government paperwork is like in France. It doesn't mean it's <laughs> bad, but it's not organic. It, yeah. it doesn't mean their practices are... Yeah, so a lot of producers are 100% organic and just not certified. Uh, biodynamic is a, 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 a private organization, so a lot of producers are pursuing biodynamics. Even if they're not uh, true believers in, in biodynamics, but they simply want that certification because they know that a consumer will say, oh, this guy recognize, uh, respects the soil. So a couple more things. Champagne is a region. Only sparkling wines out of Champagne can be called. Well, clarify yes. that. So uh, Champagne, northernmost wine-growing region in the world, which is why uh, it's very – even in August night, even in August, if you go outside at night, you're probably going to need a jacket. Really? That's one reason why. So really long growing season, again, kind of like the Sonoma Coast – Bud break in March, you can let your grapes hang until September, late September, if you're willing to risk hail and rain. So you have this really long growing season, but uh, you know a lot of the freshness from the grapes. But yes, for a wine to be champagne, it's a sparkling wine from champagne through secondary fermentation as the bottles. There is still wine but, from champagne. But there are... Right. Yes. There are also regions of champagne. Correct. Epernay or... I don't know. So, yeah, Epernay is, is often called the champagne capital. Okay. It's one of the three major cities in champagne. It's... Uh, much smaller than Rems, Rems, but it's where there are a ton of champagne houses. And you have a block called Terroirs. Mm-hmm. Does the terroir in the different regions express different champagnes? Absolutely. Or? And that's the current uh, focus and obsession of the of people who really get excited about champagne. It's why does this vineyard in, in the Cote de Blanc taste different from it, which is a region that's mostly uh, Chardonnay. Soil, climate. Why does this parcel taste different from this parcel when the wine is finished? So you're finding a lot lot more producers today than ever before are pursuing singularity, you know, single vintage, single variety, single vineyard, single parcel within a vineyard to to show off. Talk to me about the grapes. Champagne is made... So champagne... most three, four grapes? Three grapes. So seven legal grapes there. Three are there's really only three worth talking about because my friends who hear this are going to be very upset at me that I said there's only three <laughs> worth caring about. The other four grapes combined, less than one half of one percent of plantings. So, it's, it's so yeah, ninety nine percent of champagne is planted to Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, which is a red grape. Which is a red Meunier. grape. So two red grapes and one white grape, and it's split about even, about one third, one third, one third, very roughly speaking. Is there's blends? Yes, but you're saying there. A th- there's a third of Blanc de Blanc Chardonnay only, a third of... So Blanc de Blanc is always going to be one, is almost always going to be a 100% Chardonnay. Right. 
Uh, is there ever a Pinot Meunier only champagne? Yeah, so Pinot Meunier. Not Mune- a lot, right? Not a lot. It's becoming popular. So Pinot Meunier forever was kind of the redheaded stepchild of champagne because the big producers, when they talk to people about the grapes, of course they like talking about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because those are the noble grapes of Burgundy. Right. Of course, one third of their bottle has Pinot Meunier in it. One third of champagne is panted Pinot Meunier. Right. No one's heard of Pinot Meunier. So they didn't really talk about it much. It gained this reputation as a workhorse. I don't think that's really fair. I think it's as difficult to grow as anything else. But uh, today, a lot of these newer producers are really showcasing Pinot Meunier. Yeah. It'd be a fascinating grape. The trend is to be contrarian. Correct. You know, Correct. not to grow Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay in California. Yeah. You know, grow Sangiovese, mm-hmm. you know, all that type of stuff. Um, talk to me about, we're going to wrap up, um, and then I want to do the wine list with you. Talk to me about other sparkling wines sure. around the world. Sure. I mean, if you had to put people up on the podium, we give the gold to champagne. But mm-hmm. who's consistently making or has started really making good sparkling wines around the world? So I love a lot of the sparkling wines from other regions in France. I love I love Cremant de Bourgogne. Uh, I love uh, Cremant Alsace. Um, for example, like the Albert Mann sparkling wine is always delicious. The Domaine Hewitt sparkling wine from the Loire, sparkling Chenin Blanc, always delicious. Outside of France... But wait, let me just say something, because mm-hmm. I asked you before. Wine, sparkling wine out of... Um, sparkling wine has to be called champagne if it comes out of champagne. Yes, champagne is both point, a region and a wine. There's the rest of France that yes. you just said is making, you know, incredible So sparkling. in other regions of France, if they're making sparkling wine, it's going to be the same process as making champagne and it's going to be a cremant. And I think uh, Burgundy especially makes some great cremants. Uh, Alsace and the Loire also make some great, uh, great cremants, great sparklers. What about outside of France? Outside of France, especially if you're uh, budget conscious, I think Cava can be delicious. There's good quality Cava? There's really good co- quality Cava. Cava is also made, again, same method as Champagne. Very quickly, Champagne has its bubbles because a second fermentation is launched inside that bottle. So a lot of complexity is developed inside the bottle as the yeast eats the sugar and dies. So the the wine inside not only is it under pressure until it's disgorged, which we don't need to explain until But it's, you also talked about sugar. They add sugar. So yeah. That's dosage. So you can add different amounts. Really to simple. How is champagne made? You make a dry wine, you put it in a bottle, you then add a dollop of sugar and yeast. Put it inside the bottle, put a cork on it, or a crown cap like a beer bottle. What happens? The yeast starts eating the sugar, so fermentation starts, and because there's a cap on it, it's under pressure, so the CO2 has nowhere to go. In champagne and cava, you then, when all is said and done, after the yeast dies, you let it age for a while, you pop that cork off very quickly to get that dead yeast out of there, put a cork back on it, and you keep that pressure inside the bottle. And you spin the bottles a little. <laughs> you spin the bottles to, to move, move the yes, uh, yes, sediment yes, yes. up or whatever. So Prosecco, on the other hand, a lot of Prosecco, uh, the, the secondary fermentation takes place inside of tank, and then you bottle it straight from the tank. Different so, process. Different process. It's, Is I, that why it's sweeter or they add sugar? They, it's, it's, a dose, it's dosed with more sweetness, it's, it's uh, but it's also higher. the bubbles are bigger. I don't think you get as much complexity or delicacy from a Prosecco as you do a Cava. I also think we're making some good sparkling wines in the United States. Sure. Uh, Schramsberg, Roterer, yeah, Schramsberg. Schramsberg and Roterer are fantastic. You, uh, some of your listeners might have heard of Ultramarine, which is yes. a guy who's taking a spark. I was at a Michael Cruz dinner at Rebel last Monday. He took out about six, seven Ultramarines. They yeah. were delicious. And he's taking sparkling wines with as much uh, seriousness as some of these super small growers in Champagne. So there's a lot of exciting So one last thing wine. then. Yeah. Explain to my listeners what a pet nat is. Sure. So what's fun about pet nat for me is what that is it? <laughs> a pet nat is so again, how does how do grapes become wine? Grapes plus yeast, yeast starts eating the sugar, byproduct of that is alcohol and CO2. So if you bottle wine while it's still undergoing primary fermentation and put a cork on it, you're gonna have pressure inside the bottle because the yeast has not eaten all the sugar yet. That's pet nat. That's it. And that's is what, that one step less than champagne? Correct. Okay. So champagne is a dry wine that then they launch a secondary fermentation right. is. There's no secondary fermentation in Petnat? There's no secondary fermentation in Petnat. Okay. It's the primary fermentation that's been captured. Early champagne, we're talking 1700 champagne, was Petnat. Wow. 
That was the real stuff. That was the real stuff back in the day. All right, so it's obvious we could talk about champagne for four or five days, but we have to stop at some point. We're talking to David White. David just published a book, but first, Champagne, a modern guide to the world's favorite wine. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. When we come back, David's going to answer our wine list, special edition. The theme music for this program is brought to you by The Grautet. That's G-R-A-U-T-E-T. Thanksgiving is a great time to support New York farmers, including local wineries. Find great white wines, red wines, and rosés from Long Island, the Hudson River region, the Finger Lakes, and beyond at New York City wine shops and restaurants. This Thanksgiving, New York Wines is proud to partner with Fleischer's Craft Butchery, which supports local farmers raising heritage breed turkeys in New York State. With a healthy dose of ingenuity and a collaborative winemaking culture, the number of wineries in New York has grown exponentially over the last 10 years, as has the quality of the wines they produce. New York is a world-class wine region, offering quality, variety, and value. The perfect trifecta for a bountiful Thanksgiving feast. For information on more than 400 New York wineries, please visit newyorkwines.org. All right, we're back. I'm here with David White. David just wrote his uh, book about champagne called But First Champagne, A Modern Guide to the World's Favorite Wine. While I have David here, I want to uh, subject him to my wine list, and then we're going to pop open a little champagne. All right, so David, every week I have a thing called the wine list. It's a bunch of questions. Don't freak out. I want you to be spontaneous. You'll, you'll breathe a sigh of relief after the first question. How much does your mother weigh? No, that's not it. <laughs> All right. What wine are you drinking right now? And this is a special edition wine list because you can answer me wine and then you can answer me champagne. Sure. Because I know you do both. I mean, I follow right, you why, on Instagram and I see bottles all over the place. The wine that comes to mind is Julien Sunier Fleury. It's a, Fleury what, is F-L-E-U-R-I-E. Yeah. It's and that's a, from where? It's a region in Beaujolais. Beaujolais. And you can find this wine for $24. I'd be hard-pressed to find a bottle of wine that delivers more pleasure and is more delicious for that price. So, like any wine, a good maker is going to produce a good wine. So, Fleury... Fleury is a region in Beaujolais. As a region, is producing some good wines. Yeah, so the grape is Gamay. Gamay, good Fleury Gamay makers. It's a good bottle of wine, good man. Yeah. Okay, so you're drinking that now. What about champagne? You pulling the same thing out? Anything impressing you? Sure. One uh, grower that I think is going to start getting a lot of attention is Vernon, V-E-R-G-N-O-N. He's in the Daniel Jonas selections, although I'm not sure if he's with Michael Skernick Wines or with Grand Cru selections for this champagne, because I guess that's still uh, still unknown. They're still legally. I'm also falling back in love with the original Terry Thies portfolio. We... Wine geeks are excited about the hot new thing in Champagne, the hot new thing in Champagne, the hot new thing in Champagne. Which is? Um, these single expression producers like Vernon, like okay. Frederick Savart, like Jérôme Prévost, right. like Emmanuel Brochet. And there are producers like Pierre Peters and Pierre Jiménez that we're going to drink who are making really delicious wines at lower price points than some of these hot new things. Great. Favorite wine and food pairing. So you have champagne and oysters. <laughs> but give me a wine, give me a champagne. I'm going to give you a, a Cru Grand Cuvée and fried chicken. Okay, because it cuts through? It cuts through the salt. I mean, okay. yeah. What about wine? What about wine? Wine and food pairing. A wine and food pairing. Probably Northern Rome. Probably a Saint-Joseph from Ganone and a hamburger. Pierre Ganone. Yeah, Pierre Ganone and a hamburger would be delicious. I can go for that right now. The heavy yeah. handles, the bloody. Yeah. Beefy. It's a good call. Uh Favorite wine restaurant or bar? I know you're based in D.C., correct? Based in D.C. But I know you travel. Because you've traveled enough, anything resonate in the U.S.? In the U.S., yeah. I mean, I love coming to New York because every time I come, there's another wine bar I've got to check out. And, of course, a few years ago it was Pearl and Ash, and then it was Rebel, and now it's Birds and Bubbles. There's just always a new place so to check out. That kind of place you like. It's so much That's fun. dedicated. It's so much fun, to yeah. To the makers and the wine, the diversity exactly. and all that stuff. All right. Favorite 
all-time wine. Wine, champagne. All right, well, I Could guess... Could be a birth wine. You know, I think the greatest... A great Burgundy experience was with a bottle of uh, Burgundy from Jackie Trousseau, which I shouldn't say because they're they're they cost more than most mortgage payments, and it was from 1976, which was two years before Jackie actually took over. No, that's what the yeah. best all time wine is yeah. about. And it just you know it was one of those wines where again tasting notes just do a disservice to it. What's the point? It's it's a right. you know it, it almost feels like a religious experience. Why are we why are we trying to figure out if you smell green peppers? Right. Who cares? What do you like? Yeah. All right, what about a wine? Every time I have Solo Substance, I think it is a historically consequential wine that everyone needs to understand. And so for me, every time I have it, it's special. And so Solos is the producer. Solos is the producer. S-E-L-O-S-S-E-S. Correct. But the particular... Cuvée is called well, substance, substance. Just substance would be... Expensive though, right? It's expensive. But um, it's an... Okay- Champagne shouldn't be an occasion wine. Champagne but, shouldn't be an occasion wine. An occasion, that should be. <laughs> that's the one for the occasion. All right. Best wine under 15 bucks, white and red. You may have hit it with the Fleury. Yeah, the Fleury is too expensive. You know, without any question for white, it would be the uh, Pepier uh, Muscadet, the Clobriord. Muscadet always comes up. Muscadet. I mean, value. you can find that wine for 14 bucks. It really doesn't get much better than Pepier? that. Pepier? Spell Yeah. <sighs> I'm not, I don't speak P-E-P-P-I-E-R? French. P-E-P-P-I-E-R? I believe it's P-E-P-I-E-R-E. Okay. Um, with regards to a red for under $15, that's going to be tougher to do. Uh, I'm not sure on the price on the Tendu from Mathiasen. It comes in a one-liter bottle. No, it's not under 15 It's not. Well, that's it's one liter. It's not expensive. It's one oh, liter yeah, for yeah, 20 okay. bucks. So I'm going to no, say no, that, that. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. So that's 750 fair. milliliters of it are probably under 15 Mathiasen's a great California yeah. make a Very cool guy. All right. I'm asking you this. I don't ask everyone. Do you have a favorite wine writer, somebody that influenced you early, somebody you still follow, somebody you came across now, somebody that's really resonating with you? So I'm going to answer that question in a couple of ways. I really miss Mike Steinberger as a wine writer. Who is that? He was the wine writer for Slate Forever. He wrote the Vanity Fair article on Rudy Kay. And he doesn't do the that one much. that buried him? Uh, yeah, the one that got, I believe that's the movie that was optioned for the movie. Right. Mike, to me, was always the wine writer who had a voice that I, I wanted to have myself. I love Jay McInerney's writing, both as a wine writer and as a fiction writer. Yeah. Uh, He's on tour he with has, his book. And yeah, he has a way about to... words that, uh, you know, because of my day job, me and my business partner talk a lot about writing. And I remember Jay's uh, In Pursuit of Balance column. When the uh, the group of Sonoma Chardonnay and Pinot Noir producers came to California, came to the New York, and he wrote about the after party in his Wall Street Journal column, and he had this line: "Is that the IPOB?" IPOB, the group? yeah. And right. there was this great line, something like, "Sometimes in the pursuit of balance, you get a little off kilter," something like that about right. you know this after party. And it was just a perfect Jay McInerney line, uh, and I've always loved that about his writing. Yeah, he's. And I love Asimov. I think he elevates. Uh, I think he writes. To a, to a normal person about wines that normal people don't know anything about. I think he's very yeah. good at that. Uh, so those would be the three I guess I would mention. Those are good ones. All right. We're going to move to our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. We do that because why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Right. So for this week's weekly wine sip, we're going to celebrate the release of David's new book, But First Champagne, A Modern Guide to the World's Favorite Wine. So we are tasting a Jiminet Champagne. I want you to tell me a little more about the specifics, the total name, non-vintage. Mm-hmm. What are we drinking? So we're drinking Jiminet's entry-level cuvee, which is the Premier Cru Cui. So that's one E-R for premier. Right. Cru, C-R-U, Cui, C-U-I-S. Right. Uh, what Jiminet- does that mean, Cui? <laughs> Cui is a, is a village. Oh, okay. That's- is a village in the Cote de Blanc. So-, so pop it while you're talking. So Cui is a village. There we go. That's a it's great pop. sound. Cui is a village in the Cote de Blanc, so it's a 100% Chardonnay. And that's where Jiminet has most of his holdings. His largest vineyard holdings are in Cui. So this bottle is 100% Cui fruit. And what I love about this wine is that when it comes to champagne, for a long time people would say, oh, it's very difficult to find a champagne worth drinking for less than $50. 
Most people, myself included, cannot spend $50 on a bottle of wine, uh, at least on the regular. Right. This wine, you can find it. Yeah, I think it retails for probably $50. i have seen this for as little as $34, $33. I think you could probably find it online pretty easily for under 40 And to go back to what I was saying earlier, this was in the original Thies portfolio. He's had it since he brought a bunch of growers in in the late 90s. And it's one of those producers that I think people should still be so excited about because his wines are so good. But because we've all seen it for 20 years now, people Doesn't don't get matter. As, yeah, people the don't price, get excited. The price to value, yeah. the, price, the price to quality. It's just still, it's, it's it's still there. So would you say that it's one of the best champagnes in that price point? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So it's the Gimene. G-I-M-M-O-N-N-E-T, Grand Cru Cui Champagne. This is a non-vintage. Correct. So what does it mean when a champagne says non-vintage? So it's uh, exactly like it sounds. It's, for, it's a blend of different vintages. Remember that as Champagne had, to, had these production specialists that were buying grapes from across the region. So what did they do? They tried to offer consistent elegance. What I say to people is what, when you buy a bag of Cheez-Its, Anywhere in the world, at any time, you know exactly what they're going to taste like. That's what Moet and Veuve Clicquot and even Krug are going for. If you buy a bottle of Krug Grand Cruvée in Kansas City or New York, it's going to be the same. I had um, Alice Payard on the show a couple months ago, and she is on this mission to not call champagne non-vintage, but multi-vintage. Multi-vintage. Because it's basically a mm-hmm. mixture of different years. So, for example, this is a non-vintage when was this bottled, approximately, like two? That's a great question. We're going to see if it's on the back of the bottle. Here we go. This was this was disgorged, which means that they pulled those dead yeast out of the bottle in December of 2015. So 2015, but it also means there's blends of champagne wines in there from... Oh, from way back. Right. So keep in mind, it was disgorged in 2015. I'm pretty sure in this bottle, he leaves it on the lees for either two or three years. So that means that it was actually first put in a bottle in 2012. Right. And when it was first put in a bottle in 2012... Exactly. Uh, it was the 15th. But so, yeah, there might be some 2012 right. juice in there, but there might be juice in here from the 90s. Right. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's sniff and sip it, all right? <laughs> so let's talk about the color first. There's a golden hue to it. Typical uh, champagne. Exactly. Color? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the bubbles. For champagne, small bubbles are good? Yeah. You know, there's a very, very, very rough rule of thumb. The smaller the bubbles, the higher the quality. I'm not sure if that's entirely true. As time goes on, those bubbles are going to get smaller and smaller as well. If you have a 30-year-old champagne, there's not going to be a ton of bubbles left. Right. But yes, the bubble should be but very have fine. other qualities and characteristics. Yes, the bubble should be very fine in any champagne. All right, so let's talk about the nose. What are you getting on the nose? It's pretty traditional champagne nose. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of fresh apples. And I'm also getting that bread from the, the lees. Br- right. Yeah. There's and when you say, you know, the, when you talk wine and you say bread, people sometimes hear brett, B-E-R-T-T. Right. Which is very bad. Which is very different. This is bread, B-E-R-E-A-D, uh, because of the yeast interaction. And of course, it reminds us of bread because that's how bread is made. Now, what do we get on the palate? Those apples on the palate, too? I do. I also get this real richness, which I get with uh, a lot of... I happen to be one of these people who loves uh, Blanc de Blanc. I think Chardonnay is, can be the can be the best. You know, if, if I had to say what what champagne is my platonic ideal of a champagne, it would be a one hundred percent Chardonnay. And I love the richness that Chardonnay can have. It, it is rich, has a nice mouth. Yeah, can fill your Good entire mouth palette. with concentration, yep. even though it's got that freshness. Um, what else? Fruit or flower? Oh, flavor-wise? Flavor, I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, flavor-wise. Sure, you get the apples and the white flowers, like this really do bright white flowers. white flowers. This really bright, bright. sort of, uh, yeah. Um, tell me, this is a champagne question, but maybe every champagne differs. What's a good food pairing for this particular champagne? For Which this leads partic- to champagne, too. Sure. So one thing I love about champagne is that I think champagne and fried potato, like French fries, potato chips, fried chicken, anything that's fried and salty goes well with champagne. I think champagne goes great with pizza. I've been doing this series of dinners uh, where I teach people the history of champagne. It's great with pizza. And we've two of the dinners have been pizza and two of the dinners have been fried chicken. But also because it's a Blanc de Blanc, because it's an entry-level non-vintage, it's crisp and light. So it could be an aperitif with uh, 
uh, ceviche or right. oysters or some really fresh raw seafood. Well, you talk about oysters and champagne, yeah. <laughs> but then you talk about fried food. How about fried oysters? Uh, sure. <laughs> right. Works for me. All right. So that's the, uh, the Gimene Grand Cru Cuy Champagne Non-Vintage. Pretty good value. I think both David and I liked it, right? Absolutely. It's good champagne. I asked David to bring it in because I didn't trust myself to bring the right thing in. So I knew if the guy wrote a book about it and spent <laughs> all this time, he'd know what to bring. All right. So if you have a question, a wine happening, or an event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. We want to thank our guest, David White, author of his new book, But First Champagne, A Modern Guide to the World's Favorite Wine. Thank you, David. Thank you so much, Sam. It was great to be on. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Go to heritageradionetwork.com for more info. I'm Sam Van Ruby. You have been listening to The Grape Nation. We bring wine to the people. The theme music for this program is brought to you by The Grautet. That's G-R-A-U-T-E-T. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.